Ephesians 4. Open your Bibles to Ephesians 4. We're going to be looking at chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 7 through 13. We're going to start reading in verse 1 this morning. We're continuing a series called A Church and Its Pastor. And we talked about the pastor for three weeks, and we're right now talking about um, the church. And we're looking at Ephesians 4 and doing so. The, uh, <laughs> the title of today's sermon is The Church, E Pluribus Merita Unum. That's right. Uh, I've always said that there's, there's no better way to keep people in the seats, keep people in the pews, than having Latin titles for your sermon. Uh, and uh, I'm going to stick with that. I mean, really ask anyone. I, that's one of the things I say. Um, so... This is actually the first time I've ever used Latin in a, in a sermon in this way, and probably will be the last. So um, you'll, you'll see why we title it that way in a moment. Uh, all right, Ephesians 4, verse 1, Paul speaking here to the church at Ephesus. Read with me if you would. I therefore, the prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, the Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But... Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, quoting a psalm here, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Pray with me if you would. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you... Um, that you died not only to give us the gift of salvation, Lord, but that you gave us these unique gifts um, called spiritual gifts uh, that we might love and serve one another. Lord, help us learn about them this morning. Uh, help me, Lord, as I try to wade through this. Um, give me words to say. God, I pray that you would give us also uh, questions that we might have, Lord, as your word should uh, arouse and cause questions in our hearts, Lord, because it's so deep and so rich. May we grow from it this morning as we grow from one another and grow by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, if you've ever, if you've had much experience in listening to people read the Bible, you've probably been in situations where, where this might, might happen most often when someone asks you to open the Bible and they spout out a quick chapter you know, a book, chapter, and verse, right? I mean, so quickly that you don't, you don't really know what's going on, um, and they're off. 
right? And you're expected to know who is talking, who is listening, you know, why they're wearing an ephod, and who's having relations with whom. And I realize that each week we can't spend time on everything, but if we never take time to consider who is the audience, who's being addressed in this verse or passage, then we can miss out on its deeper meaning and what's really going on. We call its context. Um, And we might miss the point. Or worse, we nod our heads like good religious people and say, oh, yes, yes, exactly. I know what you're talking about. But then we miss everything. And so this morning, I want to consider some instances in the Bible um, that would be very uh, injurious to us if we didn't know the audience's situation. Uh, These are just for funsies here. Uh, Revelation 3-4. Imagine reading this without knowing much about the audience. Yet, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Um, if you just read that people soiled their clothes, that would be disturbing in many, many respects. Um, that's right. I'm using that kind of humor this morning. Uh, Deuteronomy 14.21. Do not eat... <laughs> I like this one. Do not eat anything you find already dead. You may give it to an alien living in any of your towns, and they may eat it. Or you may sell it to a foreigner. <laughs> it's very kind of you to do that and just take a dead bird. Hey, why don't you have it? Probably, you know, it's a five-minute rule. I mean, it's probably fine. Or what about Zechariah 5.1 in the King James Version? There's a prophet speaking. Then I turned and lifted up my eyes and looked. And behold, a flying roll. So... It would, if you didn't know the people in Sardis, you know, had a reputation for deadness and impurity. If you didn't know that God's people in Deuteronomy 14 are, are called to be set apart and touch no unclean thing because of their relationship with God. Or if you didn't know that God's people in Zechariah just turned from exile, been away from a while, and they forgot the rules and, and, you know, how to stay kosher in food fights, like throwing rolls, or in toilet paper in people's houses. I don't know if that happens here. But, um, you know, you wouldn't know really what's going on. And it's important in God's Word to know what's going on. Otherwise, we read things like this, and they're like, seriously? God, what's going on? So, I want to talk a little bit about the audience in this book, the book of Ephesus. What's going on with this audience? Who are they? The interesting thing is, I think they have a lot to do with us because, one, all of God's Word has to do with us, right? By proxy, through Jesus and His death and resurrection, the fact that Paul wrote these things that are lasting and they apply to our lives. But he had an original audience as well, Ephesus. I think it does apply to us both, and I want to talk about what these audiences share in common. First, Ephesus. First of all, isn't it kind of amazing that all of Paul's letters, this guy, Paul, wrote a bunch of letters that we have in the New Testament. All of Paul's letters are written to relatively young, really young churches and pretty new believers. Which, if you think about it, it's pretty humbling for us, right? Um, you know, if, if I got up here and read the entire book of Ephesians as a sermon, some of you guys would be like, okay, that was weird. Or at least you read God's word. Others of you be like, honestly, I lost him after, after verse 5. All right, so, it, you know, we have grown to be spoiled by fun stories and things like that and short sermons. Um, and at least with me, you'll have fun stories, rarely short ser- sermons. But um, pretty amazing, just as a side note. But this, this audience, 
this church, the Ephesian church, their pre-Christian background before they became Christians was quite interesting. One, they were big time into magic and the occult. All right, that was like their deal. Uh, they loved it. They loved being a part of it. Uh, magic, astrology, mystery, religions, as well as worshiping the goddess Artemis. She was the, she was the goddess in Greek and Roman culture of all things green. Like she was the, uh, she was the Prius hybrid, you know, of, of goddesses and gods. I mean, she, she loved that kind of stuff. And so Ephesus was the home to Artemis worship. If you really wanted to worship Artemis, you came to Ephesus, worship there. Um, so it had all these different beliefs, all these different magical and occult practices, partly because it was a major port city on the Mediterranean. And so you had people from all over the known world coming and selling goods there and receiving goods and back and forth. So you had a lot of different influences, people staying for weeks at a time, often talking about what they believed. So, I want to read, though, about the most significant moment, the most significant moment in this church's history, the Ephesian church's history. It comes in Acts chapter 18. We're going to read that, or excuse me, 19, starting in verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. What had happened was God had done a great work in this, this city. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of those books and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So God had done such a work in their life through Jesus, they were willing to take all of their past life and burn it. They say, I am making a break with this past life because I love Jesus and I want to follow him. But what I want to point out here is that the, they were very wealthy. All right? So not only do they like all these different practices, magical practices, occult, stuff like that, they're also very wealthy people. These pieces of silver were most likely what they call Greek drachma, which was basically an average day's wage in this culture, okay? So if you do some math and basically <laughs> adjust for inflation, 50,000 drachma would be about 6 million U.S. dollars or, <laughs> depending on the exchange rate, 5 million CI, probably less with the exchange rates I got. But 5 million CI. So we're talking $5 million worth of books. $5 million worth of books. And they rarely had such reprints in such a concentrated area. So they were mostly probably different books that people had. Now, all these different books on the magic and the occult, I want to point out two things. One, there was certainly, while there was certainly a spiritual element to this, all right, that, that obviously you get involved in the magic and the occult and things other than the Holy Spirit are involved with that. And so that was going on. But I also think, having done more and more reading about this, there was a desire to be different among the Ephesian people. They didn't just want to do one religion. They wanted to do lots of different religions. And they wanted to do different types of religion within that religion. They had a desire to be different. And they had the wealth to be different. Right? And we know what this is like. 
in our day and age, in our culture. Now, before we get to us, they were clearly figuring out, after they became Christians, how to be unified. And that's why Paul says what he does in verses 1 through 6. We read last week, we talked about one Lord, one baptism, one faith. We were all called to unity. Right? But they were also trying to figure out, this church was, we we were so different. We were so different in who we are. And Paul actually agrees with them. He's saying, in these verses 7 through 13, you are very different. But now because of Jesus, you're not different in the occult way or the magic way. You're different because of these things called spiritual gifts. More on that in a moment. But that's why Paul is writing to them, I believe, in verses 1 through 17 of chapter 4. But if you've been, if you've tasted or been around any, any semblance of Western culture over the last 20 years, you can probably relate to this church. Because in this Western culture, you know, uh, here, England, uh, I would even throw South Africa in there in some ways, uh, places like that. You know what it's like to want to set oneself apart, to be different, and also have the wealth to do it. We are, you know, growing in a time in the Western culture where we are more wealthy than any other time, even more than Roman world. We have the resources to be different. Um, the pop singer, Madonna. I remember when she, uh, she started getting into this, this mystery religion, or this, uh, sorry, this thing called Kabbalah, which is basically a, uh, a Jewish mysticism, a kind of Jewish mysticism. This is some years ago, and she, do you guys remember this? I don't know, it was a, I don't know if you do or not, but she got into this Jewish mysticism, it was a big thing, and I, I think she might sincerely believe in some of the tenets of this religion. But you can't convince me that she didn't have within her just a desire to be different. Set herself apart. I'm not going to get into Judaism. I'm going to get into Jewish mysticism. This kind of obscure thing. And about a fourth of Hollywood, I mean, it seemed like at the time, started doing as well. Like you heard of all these other people. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm in the Kabbalah. I do this thing. I don't remember the rest. But here's the irony. The irony is... On the one hand, a fourth of people in Hollywood or a large number of people in Hollywood started following what she did in a desire to be different. But really, in being different, they wanted to belong to something bigger than themselves, didn't they? That's why a lot of people did it. We also want to belong to something greater than ourselves. It's, it's no different than the time my grandmother gave me uh, some money for my birthday and told me to go buy some new clothes. Right? And, uh, and so I took the money. And, uh, but what did I do? Uh, I went to a thrift store and bought lots of clothes. Old clothes, in this case. And um, on the one hand, I, just, I wanted to be different. Like she had these expectations that I was wearing some ratty clothes. And I was, I was always looking like this, you know, with my untucked shirt. I'm just like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she said, go buy yourself some new clothes. You look like a slob. So I bought some old clothes because I didn't want to conform to her expectations this back in high school. And I didn't want to look like people did in terms of dress the last three years. On the other hand, I wanted to be part of something bigger. I wanted to have that collegial camaraderie with friends who were also dressing in clothes from the 1970s, all right? Or, or whatever, things that looked like a lumberjack would use them, all right? So that's what I wore. I think in life... We wax and wane. 
between wanting to belong to something bigger than ourselves, but also wanting to set ourselves apart. The church, well, first of all, let me say something about myself real quick. I personally have in a period of my life where I want to belong to something bigger than myself. I'll tell you why. Here in Cayman, there are a lot of differences. Uh, there's so many different nationalities. Uh, you see it in, in sports. You see it in the television programs. You see it uh, at shops. You see it especially you know, on the aisles of Fosters and Kirks, right? When you're looking at it, you're like, I've never seen that before. What is that? You know, I don't, I don't know what that kind of grain is. Is that, you know, I don't even know what category to put that in. Um, and I love it. I love the differences. But there are just, it is just that. There are a lot of differences. It can become overwhelming. And at this point, I'm looking for some commonalities between me and others. Well, the church is not unique church is not unique in the way that it promotes a sense of togetherness, but also wants you to be yourself, right? Because lots of individuals and nationalities do that. Lots, sorry, lots of uh, organizations do that, right? They say, hey, we want you to be part of us, but be yourself. So the church is not unique in that way. The church is unique because it alone, among organizations, can help sustain a sense of individuality on the one hand and a sense of togetherness on the other. God gives these gifts to each individual that are divinely powered so that that person can make a unique contribution to the body of Christ to which they belong. So it's very individual but very much a sense of togetherness. And I want to be clear today, and here's my, my main point in a nutshell in the sermon, a church body will not grow because you are unique. You must use that uniqueness to serve it. It won't grow just because you're different. So if last week's sermon was about how do we stick together, we talked about the different glues that bond. This week is how do we grow together? If you, let's say this, if I leave my gift at home, if I leave my spiritual gift on the nightstand at home, you don't grow. If you leave your gift behind, I am not equipped. I walk away less equipped to minister to others. That's, that's the truth of what this, this passage is telling us. That's a heavy truth, isn't it? I'm not trying to guilt anyone by saying you have to come to church or anything like that. But it's a sense of this is what God's Word is saying and we need each other so that we can grow. I don't want to miss out. I have a lot at stake by you using your spiritual gift to serve in this church. Uh, this country's motto, uh, I've seen all the great seals and stuff, you know, if you go by various government offices. Um, and I always, I, you know, I love it, man. And, you know, there's the queen's picture up there. Sometimes a strange man next to the queen, which I'm told is some sort of duke. Um, I've never seen before in my life. But you also see the country's seal a lot. And I love it. I love, I love this country's motto, which is, He hath founded it upon the seas. Right? I almost want to say in a pirate accent, He hath founded it upon the seas. Right? And, and 
I was thinking about my own country's uh, motto on, on the national seal of the United States was or is uh, the old de facto national motto which went up until 1956 when it was changed and that motto was e pluribus unum. Anybody know what e pluribus unum means? Many, Out of many, one. The, or, the origin of this came out of the idea that the United States had many states, but collectively they would be one. But then gradually over time it came to more be associated with the idea that there are many peoples, nationalities, uh, religions, uh, ancestries coming together as one people. And you know, you hear things like that's the United States is the melting pot. People call it that sometimes. Um, but there's a problem with this. It's a problem we discussed last week, and that is this. People have most in common, not their nationality, not their citizenship, but their sin. That's what humanity has most in common, is their sin. And so while Americans may treat each other as fellow citizens during, like, uh, you know, the Olympics, when something great happens, or during a national tragedy, eventually that fades away. It doesn't last. But if you've trusted your life to Jesus and are part of serving a church, you have a new motto. Your motto, and we're going to learn some Latin this morning, is e pluribus merita unum. Alright? Just throw one little word in there. Meritas is a word meaning uh, serving or benefits. Out of many serving, one. And that's the difference, right? In a sense, that's the separation between church and state, if you will. Is that people take their uniqueness, their unique giftedness, and they serve each other. And that's how they become one. If you've trusted Jesus, he's given you a gift of salvation. But as, uh, in the words of Uncle Eddie in the movie uh, The National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, that's the gift that keeps on giving the whole year round. He said that about uh, the Jelly of the Month Club. But I mean it in terms of grace. Because Jesus' gift of salvation gives in so many ways. He gives us strength, and that's grace. Right? He, he gives us the air we breathe, that is grace. And he gives us spiritual gifts, and that is grace. And it all comes from his work of salvation on the cross. So, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts, this unique set of gifts that you've been given to serve others this morning. So, let's learn a little about spiritual gifts. Number one, let me give you a definition. Definition for spiritual gifts. We got this from uh, Dr. Wayne Grudem, uh, a guy I really respect in my old seminary, his book, Systematic Theology. A spiritual gift is any ability empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry of the church. Any ability empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in the ministry of the church. So this definition does a couple things here. One, it includes the very purpose or spiritual gift. Your spiritual gift isn't much good if you're not using it. And you're not using it to serve the church. It's just, it's just sitting there. You know? Like that gift you got from your Aunt Edna. Just chilling on the side of the, the Christmas tree. Um, and you don't know why she gave it to you. Um, but it also includes both gifts related to natural abilities, things like teaching, mercy, administration. 
in those that seem more miraculous. Things like prophecy, healing. So we're going to look at some examples of this gift, these gifts. It's kind of cool. Uh, Peter in 1 Peter 4 actually kind of breaks out these gifts into two categories. Let's, let's read that verse real quick, if we will. Two broad categories according to 1 Peter 4.11 of gifts. He says, whoever speaks, talking the context here is spiritual gifts. Whoever speaks, speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as the one who serves by the strength God supplies. So you have two basic categories of spiritual gifts. People who, who speak, kind of lead with their words, encourage, and you have those who serve. All right? Which is interesting because in a way... I love how God's word, God's word is so deep this way. In a way, that gets to kind of the difference between elders and deacons in the church. Elders are called to lead with their words. They, they, they make decisions about church. They, they pray for the church. They, they speak. They teach. They guide. Deacons are called to serve with their hands, with their actions. And it kind of lines up with this, which I think is just really cool. But all the gifts of Scripture kind of fall under these two broad categories. All right? Those who speak, those who serve. Let's look at the list. It's going to be a little overwhelming. And we can't get too deeply into this today, which is why I want you to ask some questions via text. Here's a list of spiritual gifts. Let's start with the first list in 1 Corinthians 12. You got... Oh, man. didn't come up with the right font. Oh, well. 1 Corinthians 12. Apostle, prophet, teacher, miracles... So when I say apostle, prophet, teacher, it's technically an office, but the gifts are given along with that office. Apostle, te- prophet, teacher, miracles, kinds of healings, helps, administration, and speaking in tongues. Let's go to the next one. First Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. Oh boy. A word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing. And then of course you see kind of the repeats there. That's why I have it in parentheses. Um, miracles, prophecy, a new one distinguishing between spirits or discernment, tongues. And if I could just, if I could just reach and grab that down, we'd have the rest of that interpretation of tongues. And I don't even know what the last one is because I didn't put it on my sheet. Um, but it's in there. Ephesians 4.11. We have apostle, prophet again, a new one, evangelist, number 14. Number 15, pastor, teacher. Romans 12, 6 through 8. We get a repeat of prophecy. And then the 16th one, uh, serving, repeat of teaching. Uh, encouraging or exhortation. Uh, contributing, giving. Number 19, leadership. Number 20, mercy. Finally, 1 Corinthians 7, 7, often overlooked, marriage and celibacy, which are actually lifted as, as charis, I mean, which means a gift of grace, uh, as a gift, both marriage and celibacy. Those are our gifts. Now, I want to make a few comments about these gifts. Some important information. One, as you can tell by the list, because there's some repeats on there, Paul didn't mean to have this as a neat and tidy list, even though I've done that up here. Um, Paul kind of mentioned what came to mind. And the important thing about this is there's a significant overlap of gifts. All right? So we shouldn't think about them in terms of I have the gift of teaching. I have the gift of prophecy. You know, and like, and it's like some data program where you enter a Scantron sheet and it comes out, you know, with your gifts. All right? There's significant overlap of gifts. Like, for instance, administration in 1 Corinthians 12 and leadership in Romans 12. 
Right? Probably there's going to be some overlap a lot of times with someone who's gifted in administration and gifted in leadership. Also, the list is not meant to be exhaustive. Meaning, there are likely others that are not directly listed as gifts in scriptures. For instance, I think hospitality, things like hospitality, intercessory prayer, uh, gifts related to musical leadership, uh, craftsmanship or artisanship are likely gifts. In fact, hospitality is mentioned just before that 1 Peter 4 verse we just looked at, which I think there's a connection there with spiritual gifts. Two, think of gifts in terms of degrees. What do I mean by this? Well, we're all called to have faith, right? And yet faith was mentioned up there, it should have been, as a spiritual gift. Because some people have this particular trust, and you've seen it before, like, I can't believe how much you trust Jesus. It's remarkable. They have this great gift of faith. doesn't mean you're not called to have faith also. Or for me, I, I am not very gifted in the gift of service. Okay? And, and once you get to know me, you'll see this. Like, when I get a broom in my hands, I'm like, what? Do I do this? Do I fly on it? What, what's going on here? I mean, I, I, I'm not gifted in this way, but it doesn't mean I'm not called to take out the trash in my home or that I'm not called to, you know, help clean up after a church event. All right? What it probably means is that it should, it's, it's probably not my, the best way for me to consistently serve in the church. It should be my main way of serving when I'm very ungifted in that way. So think of it in terms of degrees, because we're all called to show hospitality. We're all called to even teach one another and encourage one another. Some people just have it in a greater degree or intensification. Does that make sense? Yeah. Third, gifts are given from different size measuring cups. All right? And we see this in verse 7, where... Paul says, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. All gifts come through the gift of salvation. That's what it's referring to there. We'll talk about that more next week. But according to the measure that Christ apportions to us, it says in 1 Corinthians 12. It's important because the gift, the size of the gift set or the strength of the gift isn't up to us. All right? But we're prone, I think, to get jealous sometimes. You know, we look at someone else's gift or just how, man, they're talented at that. They're gifted at that. And times made me jealous. Um, I had this professor in seminary. He, um, <laughs> this dude was talented. I mean, he was just brilliant New Testament scholar. He knew Greek. He just started reading Greek and then translated. I was like, awesome. Um, you just can read the whole Bible on your own. And then uh, in the original language, Secondly, he was uh, a very gifted preacher as well. And usually you don't, you don't often see that. Usually some teachers aren't necessarily overlap with being good uh, preachers from seminary to, to pastors. But he was very gifted. And one day um, in, a, in a different class, a different professor asked two guys to stand up. And they had flown all the way from Australia to Chicago for just a few days. And so this professor, again not the same professor, asked them, I said, why they flew all this way? He said, well, uh, we're putting Dr. Carson's poetry to music, and we're making an uh, international album out of it. And I was like, seriously? This guy is already a brilliant scholar, preacher, teacher, and like he's going to have like a Grammy now? I mean, what, what's, what, what's going on with this? I mean, I, Lord, 
why did you use the bucket with him? And I got like the teaspoon, you know? And, but I have to realize, number one, it wasn't up to me. You know? It's not up to us. And that should be a relief. He did nothing right. He did nothing more obedient per se. But he was just given more gifts than me. Two, aren't you glad about that? Aren't you glad that a Christian caring for the poor in Calcutta, India is given a stronger gift of compassion than even you and I? Because God gives to needs. Right? That's a good thing. We should be thankful. Well, I think most of us enjoy hands-on learning. I'm taking a, a brief aside here. We like learning where we can learn something and immediately apply it. Uh, but as a great Christian leader once, once said to me, uh, every internship needs its classroom. He said to me, yeah, in the classroom, one learns things that, that he can't apply right away, but needs to learn so he can be ready to apply it at the right time. Right? Every internship needs its classroom. And it's kind of like today's sermon. Every sermon series needs its classroom. It's going to be hard to go out and just apply this sermon right away. One, because we're a young church, okay, and he's still working on us. And, and, and we don't have a lot of opportunities yet in our church to use gifts and talents. We do have a few, and I encourage you to start using them. But we don't have a lot. But my hope is you're catching a vision this morning for how you can serve the church and for figuring out what your spiritual gifts are and maybe even ask a question on texting. Now next week we're going to spend more time talking about why God gives gifts to the church, how he uses them, and the glorious result. But I do want to give one reason, one reason why God gives us gifts to serve the church. And I think it's to move the church or, or excuse me, move us from church as they to church as we. To move us from church as they to church as we. And you know what I mean, because you go through a period of time in your life, you're going to a church, you're like, oh, I think they're doing a new thing. I think they're doing this. We're ha they're having this worship thing on Friday night. And at some point, God willing, you'll say we in passing. I have some friends, I uh, mentioned seminary earlier, uh, who went to Concordia College, and they ended up going to my seminary afterwards. Concordia is this place in Moorhead, Minnesota, uh, the northern part of the United States, uh, near Fargo, North Dakota, right across the border, actually, from Fargo. Don't you know? It's a very bleak part of the country. Very bleak. All right, I'm going to see if pictures should be up there soon. A little bit washed out, but bleak enough. Um, that just looks bleak. It looks like a hairline fracture up there. That's what it feels like to live there. And all year, this community looks forward to, to, one, to a major event, and that's Concordia College's annual Christmas concert. Each December, a huge choir and a full orchestra give a musical performance in the concert hall at a college. And every year, without fail, People in the community create a unique background that goes behind the concert performance. It's this 100 by 30 foot mosaic. And they begin in the summer, about six months before the concert. The community designs a new mosaic. They were in an empty building. And the painting begins. And everyone gets into it. 
All right, hundreds of people, from junior high schoolers to, to, to folks in elderly homes, they paint this mosaic, and they do it by number on this larger scale. But with each passing day, the picture of the mosaic takes, takes shape. The mosaic is completed. It's placed behind the choir. It has this appearance of an enormous, beautiful stained glass window stretching across the accompanying music. And the weekend of the concert, people who helped paint, they get there early, man. They get there early. They invite neighbors and friends. And you'll start to hear little whispers across the auditorium. Friends told me the things like, hey, man, you see that, uh, that rusting metal on the, on the little uh, fence post over there? Was that you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> me. And you just hear little things like, see the, see the hoof on that camel? me, baby. And people will, will, will speak. You just start hearing people talk this way. People who invest in this performance and get there early every year because each person has a role in it. When ordinary people like you and me s- serve with our unique gifts, we begin to get a sense of ownership of the church so that when you refer to the church in passing, it stops being they. And it starts becoming we. Let's pray. Lord, this is just a, a quick overview of spiritual gifts. God, I hope we get the point that you've given us gifts not to sit on, not to put on our, on our dresser next to our mirror to look nice, and not, not to show off at times we want to show how talented we are, but you give us gifts to serve the church, to serve one another. Help us start getting a vision for that. In Jesus' name, amen.